The scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 145. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak. The praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, your greatness is one of the fundamental facts of life. And I pray that this morning that you would help us not only to understand it with our minds, but to feel it in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would change us in the light of Psalm 145. God, awake us from our slumber, I pray. We are so impressed with things that are so much smaller than you. We are so given in the way we live our lives to things other than you. And I pray that by your mercy this morning you would forgive us and capture our hearts today. Oh God, please do that. It's so far beyond me to do that, but you can do it. And so I pray that by your word and by using me, your servant, And by stirring in the Holy Spirit in each of your people's hearts this morning, I pray that you would do just that for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls, I pray. Amen. Beloved, David was a man who was truly captured by the greatness of God, and he wrote Psalm 145 from from that place, from that kind of state of heart. He didn't write Psalm 145 as a philosopher would. In other words, he didn't take up the subject of the greatness of God like it was just a subject to be thought about and meditated on and analyzed and understood and articulated and promoted and spread throughout the worlds. 
he was not a philosopher. He didn't address the subject of the greatness of God as simply a religious man who thought it was his duty to exalt a particular attribute of God, namely his, his greatness in this case. He wasn't just fulfilling an obligation. David was a lover of God. He walked in communion with God and he was truly stunned by God. David was in awe of God. I don't know what it was that caused him to write Psalm 145. We have no sense of the history of of where it came from. But I promise you that in some way or other, either through a life circumstance or in the temple or in his prayer time, God opened up David's eyes and he saw something of the awesomeness of God and he wrote this psalm out of that. It was authentic awe that gave birth to Psalm 145. I promise you that much. Psalm 145 to me very much has the feeling of a love song. And what I mean by that is it's the spontaneous overflow of a heart that was truly smitten by God. Taken by God. Captured, captivated by God. In awe, in in admiration of God. It's not idealistic language. It's not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. It is an honest, passionate overflow of the heart of a man who walked with God every day of his life. David wasn't a perfect guy, that's for sure. And I'm sure that there are days when he walked in rebellion to God, just like all of us. But for most of his life, he was a man walking in authentic communion with God. He saw something of his beauty, and that's where this psalm came from. I'm not saying that it's just a bunch of sort of religious affection, sappy religion, if you will, coming out of his heart. I'm not saying that his thought wasn't based on well-thought-out truth, because it was based on well-thought-out truth. But what I'm saying is that what captured David's heart was God himself. Not just facts about God, not just an attribute of God, but it was God himself that captured David. I've said to you many times, I'm sure I'll say it to you many times more, that just as an example, I know facts about Kimberly more than anybody else in the world. I know more than her parents do. I know more than anybody who's ever known Kim knows about Kim and vice versa. We know a lot of facts about each other. But the thing that captures my heart about this woman is her. It's not the facts about her. I actually have taken time to meditate on the facts about her life try to understand who she is, where she's come from, the things that have shaped her, what's made her who she is. But I told her last night, I hadn't seen her in a couple days because I've been at the conference in Minneapolis, and I came home and I told her while I was at the conference, I just I just thought of you, and just the thought of you just just turns me on, and I don't mean physically, I don't mean that. I mean it just stimulates everything in me. It's you, you turn me on. You capture my heart. It's Kim herself that does that to me. It's not not the facts about Kim, even though the facts matter very much. And the same thing was true between David and God. David knew facts about God probably better than anybody else in his time. Others were more scholarly than David, but David really knew things about God. But it wasn't just the plain knowledge that moved his heart and caused him to write this psalm. It was a passionate love for the being of God that turned David on. Everything in him was ignited and lit up in the sight of God. That's where this psalm came from. I'm belaboring this point a little bit because I fear that if we don't 
do that, if we don't stop and think about this a little bit, we'll read a psalm like 145 and think to ourselves, boy, that's wonderful, nice sounding language, it really goes well in a church service, but it doesn't have much to do with my everyday life. And that would be a tragedy because this psalm is about everyday life. David was just a man like any one of us. And he had really seen God like any one of us can. And he's expressing things that are true of God, not only for him, but for us. He wrote this thing about 2,800 years ago, and yet everything he said lives today, lives in this room just as though he had written it right now. This psalm can live in our lives even as it lived in David's life. And I pray that it will. I pray that we'll understand that this came out of an experience of the God who's in this room with us right now. And by faith, through Jesus Christ, we can see something of Him and be in awe too. And that's what I'm praying will happen, not just today, but over the next few months as we commit this psalm to memory together. I pray that God would literally capture our hearts with the awesomeness of who he is with that i want to turn our attention to the psalm and begin working through it i'm only going to deal with the first three verses today i'm going to give two sermons to this but it'll be the longest distance between parts one and part two that i've ever done at this church i'm going to do part one today and then we're going to work together over three months to memorize this thing i'll do part two when we're done In the beginning of January, I'll come back and preach about the rest of the psalm. So for today, I just want to address verses 1 through 3, and let's read that again. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. The word extol here at the beginning of verse 1 literally just means to raise something up or to lift something up. And so when he says, I extol you, he just means I lift you up. I, I, I lift you as high as I can. The passion of David's heart was to make God look as he is, namely, very, very, very great. Not... He was not writing simply about a God that he studied. He was not simply writing about a God that he felt an obligation to say something about. He wanted to lift up a God whom he had seen to be very great. It kind of reminds me of this song we just sang, you know, where this guy was saying something about, I don't remember, Steve, how the words go, about the the aroma of the, the sweet place that this guy was in. How do those words go? His love's extravagant, it's magnificent, the aroma, all this stuff. I was sitting there thinking as we were singing, this song was born in this man's quiet time. You can just feel it. This man was just walking with God, loving God, and boom, out came this song. Same thing with David. David had seen the greatness of God, and now the passion of his heart was to extol, to exalt the greatness of God to the largest extent that he possibly could. And he took it very personally. Because he said that God was his God and his king. He felt it very deeply. And the commitment of his life was to exalt the name of the God that he loved, both privately and publicly. And because this was so, he also committed himself there in verse 2 to blessing the name of God forever and ever. Now I want to talk about this word bless for a second. The word bless in the Bible is used a lot. And it's most often used of God bestowing His blessings upon other people. So I just want to give one for instance and say a couple things about it. In Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, God is talking to Abraham. And He says, And I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the idea here is that God is great. God is God and we are not God. God is all He ever will be, and God has always been everything that He is now. No one can take from God, no one can add to God, no one can give God something that He doesn't already have, or that a person hasn't first received from God. God is the eternal source of life and blessings, and therefore He is the one who blesses, and we are the ones who receive blessing. God is the eternal source of everything. He blesses us in a sense. We do not bless Him. There's nothing that we can add to God by blessing Him. So then the question I have about that for David and for other passages where this word is used this way is what does it mean to say, God, we bless you? The Bible does say that fairly often. God, we bless you or I bless you or the people will bless you. And I think it simply means this. To bless God is to give Him honor, to praise Him for the blessing that He has bestowed upon us. It's to say, God, You have taken of Your bounty and given it to us by Your mercy. And so now we acknowledge that and and give thanks to Your name. We honor Your name. We glorify Your name. We bless Your name. So when the Bible talks about God blessing us, it's talking about Him bestowing favor upon us. But when it talks about us blessing God, it's essentially talking about us giving praise to God. When He blesses us, He blesses us. When we bless Him, we're praising Him for what He has done. We are not adding anything to Him. We're acknowledging that He is the fundamental source of everything. And a passion to acknowledge that every day of His life is what consumed David. It was not a duty for him. It was his deepest joy and his heart's delight to bless the name of God for all that God had done in his life. It was coming from a very, very deep place. And then there in verse 2, he adds a a third word to describe his commitments to this God who he had seen so plainly. Namely, he said that he would praise the name of God. So first, he said, I will extol you, I will exalt you. Second, he said, I will bless you, which is a way of saying, honor you, glorify you, praise you. And now he uses a word, praise, that literally means in the Hebrew to boast. And this word gets used in two ways. You can boast in a bad way and boast in a good way. When we boast in ourselves, that's a sin because it's putting ourselves at the center of the universe and we don't belong there, right? So to boast in myself is to brag, and the Bible always condemns that kind of boasting, always. But it uses the exact same word when it talks about the praise of God to say that we boast in God. So when a a, a boasting emerges out of my heart, but it's directed toward God, that's a good thing, it's a really good thing, and we translate that in English as praise. But the word literally means boast. And so David says, I'm going to boast in God. The Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this was the cry of David's heart, because he had seen the greatness of the glory of God. It was not a a, a subject to him, beloved. It was a reality he had seen, and his heart was to exalt God, to bless God, to honor God, and now also to boast in God. 
Oh, this came from a very deep place in his heart, and I pray that it will capture us as well. In verse 3, he tells us why this was his passion. And what he says is that God is great, very, very great. The reason God is worth being extolled and blessed and boasted in is because God is truly great. Not in the way we think about greatness. God is truly great. He is not like us. He is not like anyone we know. He's not like anyone we've ever heard of, whether in history or in contemporary culture. God is not like any being or, or group of beings, like any angel or group of angels. God is not like the whole entirety of all being put together. God is in a category all by Himself. He's far beyond anything that we could ever imagine or think. God is great, great, great beyond anything that we could ever imagine as great. I promise you, He's greater than you and I have ever conceived or anyone in history has ever conceived. And because of the greatness of God... He deserves our deep, authentic, passionate, heartfelt exaltation and honor and blessing and boasting. This was the cry of David's heart. God, because of who you are, I long to praise you with all of my heart and do it a whole lot. Do it abundantly. That's literally what verse 3 translates as. If you were to just put it very literally into English... It says, great is the Lord and abundantly to be praised. Abundantly to be praised. The ESV and, and other translations tra- translate this, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And that's a fine translation. It sounds better in English. But I want us to be clear of the, the meaning that's in David's heart. He's saying, because you're so great, you deserve to be praised abundantly, a lot, all day long, every day, forever and ever and ever. There's no need... There's no end to the appropriateness of the praise of your name. There are people in the world who deserve to be honored, but there's an end to that honor. They should only be honored like so much. And when you move beyond that so much, something's wrong with it. We're honoring them too much. We're making an idol of them. That's not true of God. It's not true of Him. We never come to the end of the time when God ought rightly to be boasted in, praised, honored, exalted. He is eternally great and therefore he deserves eternal exaltation. That's what David means by great is the Lord and greatly, or more well put, abundantly to be praised. No one else in creation is worthy of this kind of talk. Nobody. No creation and no being in all of creation is worthy of being idolized and admired and looked to and imitated and praised like this. This, this week at the Desiring God conference, uh, John Piper was honored with what the Germans call a Festschrift. A Festschrift is an, an ancient thing that was done in Europe and still done in parts of the world today, where in honor of a person's life work, a number of people who have been associated with his ministry will write essays in honor of him. And so for three years, people behind John's back have been writing these essays, and they published the book this week in, in, in front of everybody. He, I don't know how they kept the secret from him for three years, but somehow or other, people who were very close to him did that. They honored him, and it was right to honor him. But beloved, we need to be really clear that it was only right to honor him to a certain extent. And to move beyond that extent would absolutely be sin. He is not worthy of being admired in a certain way, of being honored in a certain way, of being lifted up in a certain way. It would be wrong. 
It would be idolatry. It would be treason against God. And John, above everybody else, knows that to be true. When it comes to being honored in the sight of all, God alone is worthy of that kind of honor. He, he alone is worthy of unlimited, endless, ceaseless praise, honor, exaltation, and boasting. There's nobody else like that in all of creation. Not a single person. Not a single being. God is in a category all by Himself. That's what it means to say that He's great. When I lived in California, and I mean for all of my life, from the time I was very little, I loved hiking in the mountains. I mean, I have, I have memories going back to before I can remember almost of when I was in the mountains. I can literally remember hardly being able to walk and climbing up on rocks and stuff. I was just always in the mountains. And as I grew up, that never changed. When I got into ministry, I was out in the mountains every week because I just loved to be with God there. For whatever reason, in the way my heart is wired, I always felt like I met God there in a way like I didn't meet Him anywhere else in, in the world or in my life at that time. And so I spent a lot of time with Him there. And it didn't matter how many times I ascended peak after peak after peak in my life, I always found myself being a, a little bit in awe and amazed of how things that seemed so big to me at ground level became so small when I got to the top of the mountain. And I'm thinking about practical stuff like cars and buildings and landmarks and people, you know, stuff that seems so substantial right now. But as you climb and climb and climb and climb, and maybe it takes you an hour or two hours to get to the peak, and you look down, and you can hardly discern, like, like what is that that I'm seeing down there? It seems so big when it's at this level, but when you climb up to that level, it becomes so small in the light of other things that are, are much, much greater. And God is like that. So many things seem so great to us, but when you ascend to the peak of the greatness of God, they're, they're nothing. They, they fade away. They fade out of sight. God is great in a way that we can't even comprehend greatness. He's in a category all by Himself. He's high and lifted up in a way that we can't imagine. That's what it means to say that God is, is great. One year our, our family spent our vacation up in the redwoods in Northern California. There's two different kinds of redwoods. The ones that are really super big around and the ones that are really super tall. And they're still big around, but, but they're not quite as big around as the shorter ones. So we were on the uh, uh, part of the redwoods near the coast where the trees were really, really super tall and still big enough where some of these trees, you, you could drive your car right through it. In fact, we had a minivan at that time, and we did. We drove one of our minivan, we drove our minivan right through one of those trees. It was just the strangest experience to be around trees that were that tall. And we literally camped for two weeks right in the shadow of two and three hundred foot tall trees. At that time, the tallest tree in the world was 363 feet tall. And we stood right at the base of it. And I can still feel in my soul the sense of awe and wonder I had to stand at the base of it. I mean, I look up, I, I couldn't even begin to think of seeing the very tippy top of it. It was just huge and so massive around, it just, it just made you feel like a little ant. Some of these trees had fallen down and they're so tall it made you feel like an ant. We went up and crawled on, sub top, on top of a few of them and we felt like this family of little ants crawling back and forth on top of the trees. It, it was very humbling to be around these big monsters who had lived a thousand, fifteen hundred years, some of them. But this week as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, but if you took that huge, massive, tall tree and stuck it right next to the mountain that I grew up in front of, Mount San Jacinto, Southern California, 10,000 feet tall. 
And then you climb to the top of Mount San Jacinto and look down at that tree, it would just look like any other little tree. It wouldn't look like anything special at all. You stand right next to it, it seems massive. You go up on top of the mountain and it's nothing. What's 363 feet compared to 10,000 feet? It's nothing. And what's a 10,000 foot mountain compared to the God who created the universe? Things in this world seem so big to us, so great to us, but in the light of God, they're nothing. And I don't know how it happened in David's life. I don't know. I don't know if it was circumstance. I don't know if he was in the temple. I don't know if he was praying in his room, in his secret place. I don't know what happened. But what I'm sure of is that all of this became less theoretical and more real to David before he wrote this psalm. Somehow or other, God removed the veil from his eyes and allowed him to see something of the greatness of his being, and it stunned David. It really stunned him. And so he said, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. There is a lot of bait, debate. Pat, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. There's a debate among astronomers about how big this universe is. Some astronomers today are saying that there is literally no end to the universe. And Pat, if I'm speaking right, that's where you're at, right? Your opinion is that the space of the universe is infinite. Some say yes to that, some say no to that. If we were able to get in a vehicle and somehow go and go and go and live long enough where we could do this and and see what would happen, the question is, would we ever get to the end of space? Is there an edge to space? Is it growing or is it absolutely infinite? And the best astronomers in the world right now are, are, are actually saying, we don't know. We think it might be infinite. I mean, these are secular people who don't believe in God asserting something that's infinite. It's really amazing to me to watch how God is guiding the mind of secular people to glorify Him, even though they don't know what they're doing. I don't know if the universe comes to an end or not, but what I know is God never comes to an end. You could never ascend to the top of the peak of the greatness of God. You can climb up. You can You can ascend very high, you can descend very low, you can go in any direction exploring the being of God. I have had the privilege of doing that for 24 years, and and, and many of you have as well. You can ascend, but you will never get to the top of the greatness of God. Your knowledge about God and His greatness will never be complete. Or if I can put it to you in another way, maybe a more earthly way, you will never be able to domesticate God. You will never be able to control him with your knowledge as though he's now in your grasp. We just read at the conference last night, I believe it was from 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul said, for those of you who think you know something, you don't know as much as you think you do. Every time you think you got God down, guess what? You don't have him down. God has wired us to have a capacity to know things about him. That's true. That's true. But He has not granted us the ability to take in all that He is. He is beyond knowing in an ultimate, complete way. That would be as ridiculous as thinking that I could fit all the water from Lake Superior into this cup all at one time. It's not possible. And this cup, compared to Lake Superior, is nothing. When you compare all of creation to the size of God, it's nothing. There's no way that the size of God could fit into the little cup of this body or to all believers together, or to all human beings, all beings together. It's not possible. God is great beyond anything we have imagined or ever could imagine. This is what David means when he says your greatness is unsearchable. 
He doesn't mean that it's not knowable. He just means that we'll never come to the end of it, beloved. If you are truly seeking God, it is not possible for you to get bored with God because you will never get to the end of who He actually is. If you're bored, it's because you've come to the end of what you think you know, but you haven't come to the end of who God is. You can never get there. There's always another corner to turn, always another peak to climb, always another valley to descend into in the being of God. His greatness is unsearchable. The task will never be complete. I don't know if you've ever really let this sink into you, but you are going to live forever. You will not die. The question is, where will you live forever? But if you, through the grace of Jesus Christ, are granted the privilege of going to heaven and being in the presence of God, you will explore His being forever and ever and ever. It's all you will do forever, and you will never come to the end of Him. That's how great God is. I think He's given us the physical universe, and in our generation, the Hubble telescope, to begin to help us conceive about how great this physical place is, so that we can somehow get our minds around how great He is. He's so much greater than the things He created. Isaiah said He created the whole universe with His fingers. <laughs> with His fingers. Not with His strong arms, with his, with his fingers. It's like dainty. This whole massive universe is like dainty to Him. It's nothing to Him. He's great, and we will never come to the end of Him. That's what David means when he says that God is unsearchable. Again, it's not that we can't comprehend, but it's that we will never ever come to the end of who God is. God is God. He is the Creator. We cannot domesticate Him. He will never change. He will always be great. We will always need to seek Him. We will always have the privilege of seeking Him, and we will never come to the end of all of that means. As we get to know the greatness of God, beloved, the most natural thing for our hearts to do is commit our lives to exalting His name. It's just the way God has wired it all. In fact, the the praise of things of which we are in awe is probably among the most natural instincts of the human heart. All of us does it. All of us, from birth, we, we do this. Nobody has to teach us how to do it. Nobody has to force us to do it. All of us delight in and boast in the things that we find to be awesome. As many of you know, I grew up in a football family. To this day, I love the game of football for a whole lot of reasons. In our family, we watched it together all the time. We played it together all the time. One of my brothers played for UC Santa Cruz and ended up playing for the Kansas City Chiefs for a year. We're like a football family. We love football. We love hitting each other and then hugging each other and and eating. We just love the whole thing. I, I grew up loving football. To this day, I love it a lot. At that time, the Dallas Cowboys were my favorite team. Now I'm horrified to say something like that because I can't stand the Cowboys. Ever since they did what they did to Tom Landry, I have never forgiven them. I hate the Cowboys. And I'm joking. In my flesh, I hate them. That's a whole different different thing. But at that time, when I was a kid, I loved the Dallas Cowboys. I was all about the Cowboys. Even though I grew up in L.A., the Vikings were always beating the Rams in the playoffs, so I stopped hoping in that direction. And I put my affection toward the Cowboys, and particularly toward Roger Staubach, toward the, the quarterback. He was my idol. I talked my parents into getting me a Dallas Cowboys football uniform. I had the helmet, everything. Staubach's name on my back and, and his number and everything. I would set up pillows and all kinds of stuff inside the house as obstacles, hike the ball to myself, I'd run around the house, I'd knock stuff over. I loved pretending to be Roger Staubach. 
He was my hero. I was trying to imitate him, be like him. I love talking to my other friends about him and beating them to it before they talked to him to me about him. I loved to spread the fame of his name. I wouldn't have put it that way in those days, but that's exactly what I was doing. Exactly what I was doing. You have done the same thing in other ways. Every human being is wired to do this. We look outside of ourselves, find things that we find awesome. We imitate them. We delight in them. And the reason that's in us is because we were wired to do that with God. It's a physical metaphor for what we were wired to do as beings. We were created to say, God, you are awesome! And I want to imitate you. I want to be like you. I want to spread the fame of your name, not because I'm supposed to, but because it's the deepest desire of my heart, the, the authentic, uh, authentic overflow of my affections for you. When I was a kid, nobody had to tell me to act like Roger Staubach. I wanted to. And now that I'm a lover of Jesus Christ, beloved, nobody has to tell me that I have to exalt Him. Every day I draw near to Him, and every day the God who created everything speaks to me. He does this. And it's not a chore for me to get up here and speak about Him. Believe me, it is not a chore. Besides talking about Kim, there's really nothing in my life that I love to love to love to love to do but talk about God. I love God with all of my heart. And all of us were wired to live like that. Where He is the central, captivating thing for us. And then we live for Him. In verses 4 through 20, Psalm 145, David goes on to put a lot of meat on the bones of the greatness of God. So in verses 1 through 3, he's kind of talking abstractly about it. Just saying God is great. He's asserting it. He's saying it. But now in verses 4 through 20, he wants you to know that, that he's thought about this. It's like that God's greatness was not just a principle to him. He thought about it and he thought about it really deeply. And so he lays out a whole number of things. He talks about the fact that God is good, that God is just, that he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He talks about the permanence of the kingdom of God. He talks about the compassion of God. He talks about the communion God has with His people. And in all this, He's trying to highlight the greatness, the otherness of God. I'll come back and talk about all that in January after we've worked together to memorize this psalm. But once He's put some meat on the bones of the greatness of God, He comes back in verse 21 to state what really is the punch of the psalm. If you look there with me at verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. The thing that gave birth to this psalm was an authentic experience with the God who is. The punch of it in David's life was because you are so great, I am going to dedicate the entirety of my life to living to exalt your name. I will use my mind, use my mouth, use my ears, use my feet, use my hands, use my time, use my energy, morning, noon, and night, to exalt the name of God. Every day I will bless your name and praise your name forever and ever. This was the cry of David's heart. And you know what I hear when I hear that? I hear holiness. Holiness. Most of us, I think, when we think of holiness, we think of, of moral things. We think of moral purity. We think of doing all the right things we're supposed to do and avoiding all the bad things we're not supposed to do. And certainly, that's part of holiness. 
But that is not at the root of what holiness is. That's not at the center. That's not the foundation of holiness. You know what's at the foundation of holiness? It is to be set apart, to be utterly devoted to exalting the name of God. The word holy means to be set apart. So let's say I'm going to use this for a sacred purpose, and it's among other things. Well, I'll take this one. I'll set it over here. I set it apart from other things. It's holy. It's devoted. It's consecrated to a particular use. When it comes to us, God has consecrated us for the particular purpose of enjoying and exalting His name. That's the heart of holiness. Now because I'm... I'm dedicating my mind, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my body, my finances, every aspect of my being to the exaltation of God that has certain implications. I'm not going to go have sex with other women because I'm committed to God mainly. Yes, I'm committed to Kim, but mainly I'm committed to God and He said, don't do that. I'm not going to do a whole host of things that God told me not to do, but it's not because I'm legalistically obeying rules, it's because I love Him. My life is set apart for Him. And if He says, hey man, don't use your mind to do that, then I don't want to do it. Now thank God when I do what He tells me not to do, He pours His mercy upon me and gives me another chance. Praise God for for that. We're going to talk about the mercy of God in three months when we get to part two. But the point is that the heart of holiness is not all the stuff of holiness, beloved. The heart of holiness is saying, God, I am going to devote my whole life to exalting your name. And I pray that that will be the punch in our lives today. I pray that we will look to David and imitate him even as he was imitating God. I don't know what's on your, 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 your schedule for today, but I hope you'll rearrange it and say, you know what? God has given me life today to exalt His name. So if you're going to watch a football game, enjoy the football game. But somehow exalt the name of God in it. If you cannot exalt the name of God in something, you need to stop doing it. Whatever is not of faith is sin. It's sin for us. I pray that we will be consumed, not out of duty, but out of delight, to live a life to exalting the name of God. And to that end, I do want to close this morning by inviting you to memorize this psalm with us. We put out a doable plan. The, the plans are sitting out on the back table out there. It's uh, one or two verses a week. It'll take us three months to put 21 verses in our minds. It's not hard. Some of these verses are very easy to, to remember. They're small. They're, they're easy to remember. I want to invite you to take words like Psalm 145 and commit them to your memory so that you'll have access to the, to the meat of the greatness of God at any time and any place wherever you go. Can you imagine how different your life would look if you were truly captivated by the greatness of God? I don't, I don't mean as a subject. I mean as a reality. If the being of God captured you, how would your life look? Can you imagine what might happen at glory of Christ? What God might do with this church if we as a people were deeply, authentically captured by God? just smitten by Him, consumed by Him, interested in Him, admiring Him, pursuing Him, seeking Him. Can you imagine? I don't know what He might do, but I've been praying that He would do great things. And I want you to know, I'm going to be praying for all these three months, I'm going to be praying that God would captivate us as a people by His greatness. That we would not just commit words to our minds, but that the being of God would seem so real to us through His Word. That's what I'm praying. 
And so this time, I haven't always done this, but this time I really want to press you. Please memorize this psalm with us. You can do it. I used to be one of those people some years ago who I tried to memorize stuff and I could not do it. I couldn't do it. Well, I learned something. I learned to pray and ask God to help me do it. And since I did that, man, have I memorized a lot of Scripture. I learned something. God can enable me to do things that I cannot do. Some of you think you can't do this. Maybe you're right, but God can. God can. Take your mind before Him and say, Father, I always pray three things almost every time I go to memorize Scripture. Father, number one, please just physically help my mind to, to do this. Help my mind to remember. Number two, please, Father, give me insight into what I'm remembering so that I'm not just like committing data to my brain. And then number three, Father, please help me to submit. I want to remember, understand, and submit. I want to obey. I don't want to just know the Word. I want to do the Word. I don't just want to hear from You. I want to please You. And I promise you, if you'll pray like that, God will help you. I promise you that that's true. I would love to see 60, 70, 80% of us be able to stand up and recite Psalm 145 in three months. So please go to the Lord and pray. And please think seriously about joining us in this quest. For now, let's pray. Father, I don't love you as I should. But I truly do love you. I am truly fascinated by you, Father. There were people in my life greater than Roger Staubach, but nobody's even come close to capturing my heart the way you have. I love you, Father. But I long so much to love you more. I long to see you more. I long to go into the inner sanctuary, not the one here on the earth, but the real one where Jesus Christ is. The one to where we have access now because of grace in Him and to see your glory. As Steve Shepard shared with me earlier this week and Moses praying, Oh God, show me your glory. Father, that's the cry of my heart. Show me your glory. Show me how much greater you are than all the things of this world that distract me every day. And I pray that for all of us, Father. Please move in glory of Christ, the subject of the greatness of God, away from just being a subject to where it's a reality that truly captures us. God, As elders, we can't make this happen, but I trust that by your Holy Spirit you can make it happen. So I ask you one more time, in Jesus Christ, by the power and mercy of His name, to capture the hearts of the people at this church with the greatness of your being. I love you and I thank you for hearing that prayer. In Jesus' great name I pray. Amen.